On the world we know as Earth-1, the planet's mightiest superheroes have banded together since 1960 as the far-famed Justice League of America. In 1940, in a parallel dimension we call Earth-2, the precursors of those heroes became the legendary Justice Society of America, even as total war raged in Europe, Asia and Africa. That was nearly two years ago. Come with us now to Earth 2 and the awesome origin of the All-Star Squadron. Welcome to A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me is my co-host, Herman Lowe. How are you going, buddy? Excellent, Billy. Thanks, man. I refuse to complain. We're back. Going to talk some All-Star Squadron Earth 2 action. Um, and oh, yeah. uh, now we're getting into it, listeners, because this is the first issue of All-Star Squadron. Mm-hmm. And uh, last episode, obviously, we did the preview that they had in Justice League. So, Billy, now we're getting into it. Are you as excited about this as I am? Yeah, this is the big ones because, you know, like we said last time, it was just a preview and... Uh, that the, the team that we're going to see going forward really wasn't present yet in any really official capacity in that preview, but uh, they, they do come together in this one. So, yeah, really pumped for this one. Really looking forward to it. This was always the book that I always, you know, looked forward to uh, from the minute we said we were going to be uh, doing this series. So, yeah, really excited. That's right. And, you know, um, we're, we're faced with a bit of a conundrum here, right, Billy, because actually issue two, features abbreviated origins for most of the uh, All-Star Squadron members featured within the first five issues of this <laughs> storyline, this this very first initial storyline featuring a time-traveling villain um, whom we'll also get to. We briefly mentioned him in the past. So I think mm-hmm. if we want to go in-depth into their origins, we kind of have to save that for the next episode as well because then we can sort of uh, tie that into the panels featuring every single character's origin and like I say listeners that's only going to be in issue two of the series but right now we can sort of preview um, the characters that are going to be included in the main roster of the all-star squadron right Billy and um, those are the guys that were and the girls that were teased in our previous episode by Roy Thomas in the preview in Justice League Um, as you can remember uh, listeners from the first episode we did there were a couple mm-hmm. of uh, folks showing up in the pages of the comic who were sort of hidden from view most of the time, or they were in their, um, you know, normal uh, guises of reporters and photographers and, uh, you know, geologists and volcanologists, <laughs> I should say. But now they're fleshed out a little bit more, and some even turn up in full-blown costume. So we're going to get into that, Billy, and then um, I'm looking forward to discussing stuff like who's your favorite All-Star Squadron member and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about all of that today, listeners. But, um, you know, just a little bit of specs on the comic, Billy, before you um, hit it off with a synopsis. We're going to obviously be talking All-Star Squadron, number one, published in um, September 1981, but the on-sale date actually was June 18, 1981. The cover date was September 1981. And it was a whopping 32 pages. The editor was Len Wein and a 50 cents cover price. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. So the title of the story featured in 
the first issue of All-Star Squadron, The World on Fire. And that's where we got this podcast name from, Billy, where you... Well, actually, that's that's where you got it from, I, I should say. A great time. Yeah, when we, when we were talking about this, you know, you always want to try to find something, you know, a little bit, you know, different or catchy or whatever, but I kept overthinking it. And the more I overthought it, I was like, okay, just stop. <laughs> and then I took a little time to like not think about it at all. And then I just, you know, opened the first issue and that's what you see on the splash page. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good. I think that would work out great. So that's the impetus of uh, the podcast name. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is a, a great improvement over our first initial name, which was going to be the All-Star Squadron podcast, abbreviated as the Asscast. <laughs> With the tagline, two jackasses cover the, the ass comic of DC. <laughs> and we'd always have like, you know, cheek cheeks references and stuff like oh, that yeah. But yeah we decided against that <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. you're right so um uh, we decided not to be too cheeky and uh we just just went with mm-hmm. something a little bit more original but <laughs> obviously plagiarized from this issue but it's a great name i really dig it and i'm glad we have you know decided upon this one so uh, for our creative team this time around again roy thomas as the writer penciler rich buckler inker jerry ordway lettered by John Constanza and colored by Carl Gaffert. And this was reprinted in Showcase Presents All-Star Squadron Volume 1 trade paperback. And to the best of my knowledge, that is the only way you'll find it in collected form other than if you want to read it um, on the DC app or on Comixology, you can do so. Um, and I guess the only other way is to troll eBay or your you know, comic book stores or conventions for back issues. I would kill, mm-hmm. believe, for an omnibus of all-star squadron collecting let's say the first 20 issues that would be amazing yeah there's been a lot of clamoring for that with you know some of the talk on uh, twitter that you and i've been having with some people about the show and the title and their love for it and a couple of people have mentioned that like okay dc how about a uh, an omnibus do you figure you they could probably squeeze it in in two volumes yeah they'd be bigger volumes but two volumes they could do two omnibi and uh, that would be it and like, let's be real. The, the people are there that would buy this because a lot of people would rather just have it collected instead of hunting down the singles. So, yeah. you know, 100 bucks a pop. You know, DC, come on, make some money. <laughs> mm, mm. I, I prefer three Omnibuy, but, you know, if, if they could squeeze it into two, I mean, I'd, I'd take what I can get. I just hate re- reading these really huge um, Omnibus editions, you know, believe the ones that, that exceed 1,000 or 1,100 pages. It's just ridiculous. I mean, Grant Morrison's mm-hmm. uh, new X-Men omnibus would be a good uh, example of that it's just it's so unwieldy and difficult to read and um you know i don't want to complain i like these omnibi that are like 800 pages like the shang chi master of kung fu omnibuses mm-hmm. or i mean some dc omnibi are also good um you know the, the justice league international one comes to mind but i would prefer they do this in three omnibi so that it would be easier to read and obviously then they could put a lot of extras in there too you know otherwise yeah. they would have to cram like 30 plus issues into each omnibus if there's only going to be two you know so yeah. um but we'll we'll see i'm i'm hoping we get something I, f- I mean if they can do a who's who omnibus for god's sake which which is <laughs> apparently coming they could definitely yeah. do a couple of all-star squadron ones anyway yeah for real yeah enough complaining let's talk, talk about the positive <laughs> things <laughs> all right so when we left it off the last time right listeners we talked about uh, the lead up 
to the um, in U.S.'s eventual involvement in World War II, um, which we're also going to be discussing later, the historical aspects of the U.S. and Japan's animosity towards each other. But um, we ended that preview issue, right, Billy, with, um, I think, the clock striking midnight on uh, December the 7th, um, 1941. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, President Ro- Roosevelt lamenting the fact that he couldn't reach the Justice Society of America because of various reasons, but the main reason being that they've been apprehended by unknown to foes, at least to them at that point in time, foes that were unknown to them. But as we came to learn, they're actually foes that um, the, the Justice Society would encounter later on in their careers post-World War II. Um, but suffice that to say that basically they've all been kidnapped, not all, some have escaped Dr. Midnight, the Atom and Hawkman. They, they, mm-hmm. uh, they're probably the only ones of the, the main Justice Society roster who sort of evaded the capture by the henchman of this nefarious villain who seems to be a time-traveling foe. Um, we already know who he is, but we sort of uh, uh, left him on the back burner during our last episode um, because we want to save the full reveal for this week. Right, Billy? <laughs> So, Billy, I'm going to let you speak on the synopsis, and then we can get into the story. This is a whopper, folks, so perk up your ears. Yeah, get ready. All right, here we go. So, the Manhattan skyline is the backdrop, and the hero flying through the night sky is Hawkman. He swoops into JSA headquarters, but gets attacked. Luckily, the squabble gets sorted out quickly as none other than plastic man is the guy behind it he tells hawkman that fdr sent him to ask the jsa to come to washington dc the two heroes then depart but get accosted by king b and his drones the two heroes make quick work of him but then an explosion knocks both of them unconscious meanwhile over in the pacific ocean near the hawaiian islands shining knight is flying on his winged horse and he lands on an island He almost immediately runs into Danette Riley, and the two discuss the strangeness of the volcano Danette has been studying. They proceed inside a cavern at the base and are quickly attacked by Solomon Grundy and Professor Zodiac. Wotan then also shows up, and then we are introduced to the mastermind behind all of this, Degaton. Degaton then explains that he's from the future and he is here to conquer the world. All right, buddy. What did you think of this? Okay, uh, great introduction to the new characters that are going to be featured with basically throughout the entire All Star Squadron run, with a couple of other ones being introduced later on, right, Billy? But but we've got the mm-hmm. the dominoes all in place here. So Roy's obviously uh, relying on the appeal of the old Justice Society members, which is still fresh in the minds of all DC readers at the time, because obviously they've had their own series in the 1970s and they've appeared in numerous JLA JSA crossover issues before this. So, you know, um, but the new characters I think is what made made it for me. Not new, but new to me at the time. Obviously all of them right. have appeared. So before we get into the story, I wanna ask you like, um, okay, we've got our favorites and um, I'm gonna, run, uh, you know, just <clears throat> let the listeners know their names. This is the initial roster of, of uh, quote unquote um, new characters. Um, they were obviously not created by Roy Thomas. They had various creators during the golden age of comics, but um, Roy sort of brought them to the forefront here. 
Um, guys like Liber uh, you know, Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Robot Man, and then you you had the Shining Knight, you know, um, uh, who who's going to be playing a prominent role, and uh, Phantom Lady, she's in there, you know, briefly. So, you know, um, I, I I wanted to ask you, like uh, later on, we'll be introduced to others too, folks like Commander Steel, Amazing Man, and then there's going to be a couple. But um, I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you, Billy, like um, since you've been reading All Star Squadron for a while now, researching and stuff, and Who's your favorite member? This this has been okay, something so, on my mind. <laughs> yeah, so for me, it's Robot Man. <laughs> I really like him, and the reason, what made me like him the most, because I have always been a Hawkman fan from the little bit of comics I've read. I really liked uh, his character, and you know, I also like Shining Knight too because I'm a huge fan of the you know Arthurian uh, yeah. lore. Yeah. So those two were always my like two people I thought, you know, I would have thought would have been my favorite picking up this book. But not too long ago, I picked up the issue of All-Star Squadron that shows you Robot Man's like a full. I think it's the same origin story from the Golden Age, if I'm not mistaken, or pretty close to it. And I got the issue that has him prominently on the cover and you see his full uh, you know, origin story. I think it's in the. 40s or 50s maybe the issue number 50s yeah yeah yeah. it's late, much later on it's during the when you already met uh, this this lady called mechanique who's sort of like yeah. a you know metropolis um uh mm -hmm. knockoff of, of 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 you know that that um old 19 golden age film yeah she's yeah. kind of like the, the robot protagonist version of that film mm -hmm. And he he uh, enters into a love affair with her. Yeah, that's where where we get a, a more <laughs> a, a full rendition of his origin story. Yeah, but I loved that issue. That if I had to pick a favorite issue of the entire series, I, I that would be it. I loved it. It was like you know very golden age with you know these gangsters and the origin story with you know like science, you know these scientists and everything. I just I loved everything about it loved yeah, it that's yeah. my favorite issue and he's my favorite character yeah and just to mention to the listeners right Billy this is not the robot man from the silver age from doom patrol uh, this is not no, Cliff no, steel no. robot man cliff steel was in fact kind of like over at marvel you had the human torch from the fantastic four based on the original human torch from you know the mm -hmm. timely comics this is kind of similar to that this is um a robot man from the Doom Patrol actually being based on the original Golden Age robot man, which is Dr. Robert Crane, the, the guy we're talking about now. And of course, he's, yeah. he's visually similar to the Doom Patrol robot man, who's probably arguably the more famous one. And, and I also love, uh, you know, Cliff Steele robot man. But um, robot man and uh, later on his uh, best buddy, <laughs> Commander Steele, <laughs> the, the two of them yeah. would become my two favorite characters in All-Star Squadron. Um, cool. I mean, but that's from the from the the new new roster members, though. I should say that you know my favorite JSA member has always been the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott. But mm. Ro Robot Man and Cliff, Cliff uh, well, Robot Man and Commander Steel, they make such a great team for me throughout you know the early issues of of um, uh, All Star Squadron mm -hmm. that you know I couldn't really pick and choose between the two. So, you know, just to give the listeners a little bit of, of, of history here, right, uh, Billy, this mm. robot man, he's also uh, a scientist. And he and his assistant, I think a guy called uh, Chuck, Chuck Grayson, they worked on perfecting kind of like a mechanical body in which you could uh, put a human brain, 
let's say for instance someone had been damaged in an act you know their body had been damaged beyond repair um yeah. and only the brain survives they were kind of like doing this for medical reasons right right and yeah. so yeah and some some criminals broke into the lab to steal <laughs> this invention and um you know uh, dr crane was fatally shot and then of course uh, chuck grace and his assistant you know after the criminals left he transplanted uh, Dr. Crane's brain into the body of his crea- his own creation, and um, mm-hmm. Robot Man's great man. He's bringing a much needed technological side to the JSA. I think to the All Star Squadron. I should say. I mean, this is not the Justice Society of America. This is actually going to be a greater organization incorporating the Justice Society of America, right, Billy? And in fact, the Seven mm-hmm. Soldiers of Victory. Um, mm-hmm. And if you want to look at it, the Justice Battalion as well which was in the old All-Star Squadron, uh, the old All-Star Comics. Uh, there was All-Star. a yeah a group called the Justice Battalion, which Roosevelt sort of formed. And this is sort of Roy, yeah. Roy Thomas um, expanding upon that. So, yeah. you know, um, Robot Man brings the scientific side, the much-needed scientific side to the, the All-Star Squadron, I think, because he is a scientist. He's got all these gadgets and technology. He's sort of like a precursor to the Atomic Age, which which would um, only start you know in 1945 and then in fiction sort of uh, culminate in the 1950s golden age of science fiction, or yeah. actually the golden age of science fiction has already started in the late 30s and and the 40s in the pulp uh, magazines you know, so oh, yeah. he brings that side to it and then Commander Steele he's sort of the patriotic side of of um, uh, you know the All Star Squadron. He's a link between the military and the superhero, you know, um, universes for me. And he's also mm-hmm. like a Captain America figure, but he's a Captain America figure I can fully get behind because, you know, he doesn't, you know, uh, he's he's not like Cap where he's got this huge burden on his shoulders, you know, where you have to carry no. the the country's patriotism all on your own. Uh, he's more like. Um, a guy that you could see uh, ending up in 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 movie serials that that are about even fighting aliens or something. You know, he doesn't have to exclusively fight Nazis or or something like that. Not that Cap has to do that, do that either these days. But um, I I just love the two of them no. combined. So I'm gonna go with you and say Robot Man's my favorite too. <laughs> yeah, the, the that issue I was talking about. It's a very it's like a a 1950s B movie, sci-fi movie. <laughs> it's exactly it's like the script right out of one of those movies. It's great. <laughs> yeah, man. I um I remember I read that much later on in my, you know, I think that was one of the back issues I picked up in the 1990s to fill up the series or in the late 80s. And uh it blew my mind, you know. It's it's like the series was still going very strong. It started off very strong and there were a few, you know, obviously like most um comic series, a few bad issues here and there, but all-Star Squadron, I remember, it, it sort of stayed consistently strong. You'll have like a good issue and then you'll have a great issue and then you'll have a mediocre issue, but you will never have a completely terrible issue. So, yeah, no. um, you know, that's what I liked about this series. And, you know, we were rewarded for reading it, I think, my friends and I, back in the mm-hmm. day for re- reading it all the way through um, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, it's a pleasurable experience. And then that's why I've recently reread it, you know, just be, to... to to get that that feeling back, you know, which was just hard to actually to to reclaim, right? Believe that feeling as a kid uh, that yeah. you have for reading a series the first time. But you know, mm-hmm. the story itself is is kind of uh, all over the place because Roy has to again juggle multiple characters, right, Billy? And that's kind of tough to do 
What do, what do you think about that aspect of this tale? It's basically like little vignettes, almost like the preview was of uh, characters. Yeah, I think he was still trying to uh, suss out, you know, getting all these characters, whether it was, you know, the, the heroes or the villains, into the situation where, you know, we're still relying on FDR wanting the JSA to help out with, you know, the war effort and that not happening and the reason behind that and bringing the team, the new team, the all-star squadron together. So for the preview and this issue, it, it was, there was a lot going on. Mm. So, you know, you can kind of get caught up in it a little bit, even though, like you said, it's almost like two or three pages of this, two or three pages of that like vignettes, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little, the, the preview in this issue, you know, when you're, if you were a new reader back in 1981, you know, and you were a long time DC reader, I'm sure you were loving this. If you were a brand new reader, uh, you might have been like, oh boy, I hope they get somewhere soon. But they do. You know, Roy gets somewhere very, very soon. But the preview in this issue were a little like, you know, uh, I don't say chaotic, but it was it was tough to, uh, you know, get through them and just try to like process everything in your brain to see where this was going. Because again, we you know, we're like we alluded to, there's a time travel aspect to it, is and that's how Roy, uh, you know, basically yeah. made this whole thing work <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's right that's exactly right and Roy sort mm -hmm. of um I, I like what he did you know he brought some of the villains that in yeah. the all-star comics timeline from the from the 1940s the villains the justice society would face after the war was done they brought he brought them into the past yeah. in order to sort of surprise the justice society because that immediately gives the villains an advantage because they've they've yeah. they've fought these members before but the Justice Society, mm -hmm. though, has never fought them before. So per Degaton, who, who orchestrated this, he knew that. And that's why the Justice Society, even the folks folks like the Spectre and Dr. Mm -hmm. Fate were surprised and could be captured, even though that is still a little bit unrealistic for me, you know, <laughs> like we discussed in the previous episode. Still, it happened. And, uh, you know, I can see Roy's reasoning behind it. It's, it sort of makes a logical sense, right, Billy, behind it. Yeah. And um, I do love time travel villains. I mean, over at Marvel, Kang the Conqueror is my favorite Marvel mm. villain. And per oh, yeah. Degaton, man, he's pretty close too on the, the time travel villain roster. You know, I, I like him. He's a megalomaniac. He's um, worse than Hitler. He even says he's worse than Hitler. So don't just take his oh, word yeah. for it. And, um, you know, he's got this plan to conquer not just the world, but all of time as well. But his initial plan was to change historical events in order to do that. And he would have had mm -hmm. to take the Justice Society out in order to do that. And he picked a good time for that too, Billy, because the whole world is engaged in a war. So he could right. sort of pick off the the whoever's left, you know. So um, uh, And of course it makes sense taking out the big hitters first, which is the Justice Society. Although Degaton didn't really plan on the rest of America's mystery men stepping up to the bat, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. that's in fact what what turns the tables on him. Now, Billy, before we get into the, the 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 main bulk of the story here, I just want to mention that you know Roy sort of had these separate events with three or more characters in each little like he cut the story into chapters, even though it isn't even yeah. mm -hmm. it's not you know formally say, saying chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. But the first quote unquote chapter would be Hawkman arriving at the Justice Society headquarters because he's, well, just been attacked along with Dr. Midnight and the Atom by the Jekyll and Hyde guy, the monster, right? 
So he wants to yeah. check in on the rest of the JSA, but he finds it deserted and Plastic Man's there. And Plastic Man's working for the FBI at this time. So he's sent by the FBI and by indirectly by Franklin Roosevelt, the president, to yeah. to kind of find out why is there nobody present, you know, uh, at the Justice Society headquarters. So um, you've got that little bit. And then they're attacked and Plastic Man proves his worth by sort of saving Hawkman's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the villain that they're attacked <laughs> attack by is another <laughs> wacky. I mean, why would Degaton have picked this guy? I can understand that he picked Wotan and Solomon Grundy. I can even understand he, he, uh, he picked Professor Zodiac. But this guy, come on. <laughs> you know, who is it, Billy? Who is... <laughs> <laughs> King B and his drones. Yeah, he's a goofball. Yeah, yeah, King B and his drones. But and yet the way that Rich Buckler draws him um is it's sort of reminiscent of Roy's look uh in the nineteen sixties when he was working for Marvel. Roy Thomas here, folks. You know, he's got the same yeah. kind of hairstyle that Roy sports, except it's brown and not blonde, but wow, he looks a lot like Roy to me. <laughs> he's even got the glasses. <laughs> Okay, that's probably not <laughs> yeah. intentional. You know, it's it's obviously based off of this guy's golden age appearance. But still, Billy, this right. guy, the, his look is really wacky. And I, I love that about this issue. And then he's taken out so easily. I mean, um, mm-hmm. he, Im- immediately after getting slugged, he disappears, right? Fades back <clears throat> into right. the, the time stream. At first, mm-hmm. it's his drones, right? They disappear one by one. Plastic Man and yeah. Hawkman have no problem taking them out. And what's up with Hawkman just leaving Plastic Man hanging in the air saying, oh, you're going to have to fend for yourself, buddy. And he and he mentioned something briefly like, I hope you can fly or something like that. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I hope you're okay there, pal. Yeah. <laughs> but Hawkman, man, like I, like I mentioned in the last episode, he's definitely the, the hard man. He's tough as nails. You know, I, I've always liked the Golden Age Hawkman. And even the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the Earth One Hawkman too, I like him too. Uh, but I like the Hawkman who's like the reincarnated version of the of an Egyptian prince and uh, that mm-hmm. he invented this uh, nth metal that allows him to defy gravity. And mm-hmm. uh, the reason why he's sporting this Hawk motif and this look is because of the, the Hawk God, you know, that he worshipped in ancient Egypt uh, or that they worshipped, in fact. And... Um, you know, I like that bit more than I do the Thanagarian, you know, science fiction type Hawkman that was done in the 60s, even though that's also pretty cool, right, Billy? Oh, but, yeah. But he, there's some great scenes here drawing Hawkman flying, mm-hmm. which I really liked. And even when Hawkman's engaged in mid-aerial battles, just punching these drones. Wow, the art is off the scale here, really. I'm, I'm, I'm really loving it. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Buckler and Ordway here are great. They're a great team. And even the scenes where, you know, it switches back to, you know, uh, the White House with FDR and all the people there. Just, you know, mundane scenes like that where they're just, you know, characters just speaking. It, they look fantastic. They're yeah. really good. There's yeah, no complaints at all about the artwork in this issue. Yeah, they're always dynamic. They're always moving. You know, um, it, the art it's it's a restless type of uh, you know art it's uh, it keeps flowing everybody's in an action yeah. pose but it's not completely unrealistic because they're always mm-hmm. engaged in some form of fisticuffs or uh, yeah. you know where they have to actually be uh, moving and uh, you know we've got uh, this this great little bit that opens the comic with Hawkman and Plastic Man engaged in this aerial battle 
which is amazing. I mean, at one point in time, Hawkman even tackles, uh, you know, um, uh, his, well, his future, one of his future nemeses, right? Because this guy's a Hawkman foe who's been brought back in time. And then as Hawkman tackles uh, this bee creep, the bee guy says, "Um, you can't defeat me again. Not this time. I I won't let you (laughs) like a spoiled little kid. But he's being tackled midair. And then as Hawkman punches him, his, there's this great panel of him exploding in midair. Obviously, he's, he's not yeah. dead. He's just being sucked back into the time stream because Hawkman's going to meet mm-hmm. him again in the future. But yeah. um, that's a great bit of action there, Billy. And that's just the first, yeah. what, the first eight pages, the first seven pages mm-hmm. of the comic. And we already yeah. get this great battle. And Plastic Man, like I said, ends up saving Hawkman's life. Um, then you've got probably one of my favorite scenes is also featuring one of your favorite characters, the Shining Knight, Sir Justin yeah. of King mm-hmm. Arthur's Round Table, time displaced on his horse winged victory. And he's mm-hmm. arriving at this volcanic island, which we might remember from the previous, uh, from the preview we discussed oh, yeah. where, you know, um, the uh, Danette Rayleigh, the volcanologist is, is doing a bit of a, a, a survey of the island to see why uh-huh. this volcano is acting up and Sir Justin lands and he, you know, um, he briefly mentions his tenure in the, with the seven soldiers of victory or as they're called mm-hmm. laws legionnaires at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And and he sets down and then he discovers the Ned Riley and then they investigate the volcano and then they, you know, Sir Justin just brandishes his magical sword, just hacks his way into this mountain, which is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then they're confronted by Solomon Grundy. Mm-hmm. Now, this is another great fight and some pretty good action art from Ordway and Buckler here. Habili, oh, do yeah. you want to speak on this? This is actually them uh, versus Solomon Grundy and Professor Zodiac. But Professor Zodiac, for me, he's, when Solomon Grundy's on the page, he's sort of like, I don't know, I don't even see him. <laughs> you know, I'm just <laughs> focusing on Grundy versus the Shining Knight here. So what did you think yeah. of this this second vignette, the second uh, part of the story? Let's, let's call it chapter two. Yeah, I like this one quite a bit. Um, and it shows you, I do like, Solomon Grundy's one of my favorite DC villains. And I know he's, you know, not, not the smartest, uh, sharpest tool in the shed, but just his power level alone, you know, he's uh, you know already fought Superman. So Sir Justin thinks he's just going to, you know, punch him out and it doesn't really work. But yeah, oh, again, Buckler and Ordway, great here with, Solomon Grundy menacing him, taking his, you know, hardest punch and then just knocking him out with one punch. And, you know, Danette trying to uh, get involved with her gun. And, you know, she's not, not very effective either, man. And then <laughs> Grundy actually slaps her and knocks her completely out. But yeah, oh, great stuff. Some yeah. of the dialogue, too. I love Roy Thomas's dialogue for the Shining Knight calling. <laughs> Grundy a monster and an ogre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's really what sets Grundy off, right? He was just gonna go yes, go yes, easy yes. on them, but because you know, um, Sir Justin called him an ogre. He says, "You dare call Solomon Grundy a monster, an ogre?" And he says, "For that, you must pay, little man dressed in metal." <laughs> and then you know, there's this great, but I think it's only like a three-panel sequence, right, Billy? Where there's this fight between Grundy and, like you say, Sir Justin tries to lay him out with a haymaker, which is quite of a good, good shot too. If you think about it, Sir Justin's—he's not supernaturally strong. He's just got an enchanted armor, which uh, is bulletproof and also proof against various kinds of physical damage. That's probably why he can yeah. survive 
a blow from Solomon Grundy, right? Which which lays him out, mm-hmm. but it doesn't kill him. But he he punches this guy's guy in the face with a massive sound effect, pow! <laughs> and Solomon mm-hmm. Grundy, in fact, feels it. He says like he, he there's a grunt of pain coming from him, right? And then yeah. we have one of um, the Shining Knight's exclamations, uh, which is by my halidum, <laughs> by my halidum or something, <laughs> by my halidum. I did strike him with all my might. And then, um, you know, we have uh, Grundy taking him out and also Danette Rayleigh giving a good accounting of herself. I mean, she throws an oil lamp at Grundy, right? <laughs> at first, her, she shoots, uh, you know, at Zodiac and Grundy. Um, but uh, yeah, because she's got a little bit of a handgun that I think her brother left her, the naval officer, mm-hmm. who's the original firebrand, yeah. who dropped her off during the preview on this island. But then, you know, she yeah takes on Grundy and Zodiac. So she's a brave lass, but she gets mm-hmm. love tapped out of the fight. And that's Grundy's direct mm-hmm. words, right? He says he's just going to give yeah. her a little bit of a love tap. <laughs> yeah. So, and then they wake up and um, Wotan's got them imprisoned in these sorceress aura shields as per Degaton calls them these these aura uh yeah i don't know what, you, what what he called them exactly but it's basically you know it's four shields um yeah. imprisoning them and we we see sky pirates sitting there and for some reason within the center of this volcano Degaton's got a giant throne <laughs> with a big red d <laughs> on it <laughs> Every good despot has to have a throne and, you know, some kind of name or symbol or something on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, he even gets into it with Wotan a little bit because Wotan sort of not not a guy who takes orders from others. Wotan's arguably the most powerful of all of these guys gathered. And then Degadon says, are you? Are you really the most powerful, Wotan? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Wotan um, doesn't say anything about it or do anything about it, so... Exactly. And then Degaton, you know, reveals that, you know, he's actually from the year 1947. And then yeah. Sir Justin, by Merlin's magics! Another one oh, of his that. exclamations. <laughs> and we're going to hear a couple from him throughout the series. He doesn't actually turn up as much as I'd like him to, to show up. No. You know, but he's yeah. basically normally based in Britain. But for some reason, he was flying over the South Pacific Islands this time around, right, Billy? But normally, he's mm-hmm. defending Britain because, after all, he's from King Arthur's court. And uh, we'll, we'll see him whenever the uh, All-Star Squadron hits over to Britain. Yeah. But, you know, this is just the second vignette, right, Billy? Then after uh, the reveal of Degaton being a villain from the future, we cut to Pearl Harbor itself, where now mm-hmm. it seems that Danette Rayleigh's brother, you know, he's docked. He's finally, you know, uh, being the captain of a ship, he's arrived at Pearl Harbor and he's being um, taken to the airfield by his old sidekick, Slugger, right? And they, mm-hmm. when he used to be firebrand fighting criminals um, in his, his, his superhero guys, um, Slugger used to be his sidekick. Yeah. And they're taken to the airfield and that's unfortunately uh, just before 8 a.m., on the morning of December the 7th, 1941, when we, we know what's going to happen. What What is happening, in fact, right now is the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they're attacking the airfield, and that's exactly where uh, Slugger and um, the captain are, you know, at this moment, and the aircrafts are destroyed. Their jeep is blown to bits. And then mm-hmm. as they run across this airfield, Slugger is wounded, 
but uh, a Japanese Zero strafes the airfield with bullets and then you know it seems that um, uh, Rod Riley is mortally wounded by you know the fire Killed. from the Zero. Killed. Yeah. Well, he's going to be in a coma for a while, but yeah. um, according to this page, this is this is the end. So of course, uh, Danette's brother taken out very early in this conflict. And um, yeah. that's a bit of a sad bit for me because you know how that's going to impact yeah. uh, Danette Riley, who's going to be a big player in the All-Star Squadron later on. And, mm-hmm. and Billy, that oh, yeah. ends the, the third chapter, which is a very important chapter because this is the first time, um, obviously, this is the start of the war for, for America. Uh, and this is when yep. they've actually portrayed the the Pearl Harbor attack. Now, they won't be showing too much of it after this, but um, it's actually just one single or two pages actually devoted to the attack. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we, we cut back to the States where the rest of um, America is still <laughs> blissfully ignorant. Yeah. There, There's a base, uh, sorry, an American football game happening. And for some <laughs> bizarre reason, okay, this might not be bizarre. I mean, we might get comments uh, on email saying, why do you say this is bizarre? But you know, Doctor Midnight and the Atom—they've just been attacked by the Jekyll and Hyde guy, the monster, and said farewell yeah. to Hawkman. Now they're at a at a American football game in full costume, <laughs> watching American football. Yeah. Oh, what do you think about this scene? Oh, this is great. Yeah, you've uh, you know uh, used the term before when we've talked on uh, other shows about uh, things that are a little bizarre happening. Uh, incongruous and that's kind of how this yeah. idea about this scene here too it's just like what and then you know something happening in the game and <laughs> adam jumping up yay team <laughs> dr midnight's like uh adam please you're attracting attention and i thought you're you're attack- <laughs> attracting attention like people don't everybody around you wouldn't recognize you these costumes <laughs> yeah yeah i think this is roy roy thomas bringing humor into the strip i think this was all intentional yeah. this was um, you oh, know yeah. intended to provoke because if you think about it you know a lot of these superheroes they did show up to support you know various sporting events uh, i mean at least all based off of the covers of the golden age comics right you'd, you'd see superheroes at sporting oh, events yeah. for especially if the sporting event was sort of benefiting charity or for some reason, you know, which which we had in the preview too, with Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and you know the Flash being engaged in a in a, in a race for charity. Um, but uh, in this case, you know, it's 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 really strange because there's no ostensible a reason other than the fact that they enjoy football that they have to be there. But then why not go in their civilian guises? <laughs> yeah, the, the the costumes are what makes it really kind of bizarre. Exactly. Other than that, it's like you said, okay, everybody. You, they weren't aware yet, you know, what was going on in Pearl Harbor and, yeah, you know, there wasn't really anything else going on. They had just beaten the crap out of a couple of villains that tried to attack them and then they disappeared. So it's business as usual. But, yeah, being in there. Yeah. <laughs> costumes is a little bizarre. And, you know, that that's not where the bizarreness ends, listeners, because... Um... You know, at the football match, they spot a G-man that Dr. Midnight seems to know <laughs> called Ed. And they see that he's looking anxious and he's leaving the the stadium, you know, while the game's still going on. And they follow him purely based off of that reason. They say, hey, Ed, what's going on? And they say, oh, I'm going to, I've, you know, I'm receiving a call. I've just been called away because I'm, I, I'm receiving a call on a three-way hookup to Hawaii. And then Dr. Midnight and the Atom are present when this uh, G-man Ed gets the call from Hawaii saying that the base at the Pearl Harbor is under attack. 
And then mm-hmm. the atom slams his fist into his palm and says, damn, those scheming. So he obviously <laughs> wants to say the Japanese. And, um, yeah. you know, that's where the Justice Society, well, the, the, when they learn about the war the first time, this is doc, uh, the atom and Dr. Midnight. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's weird because they're trying to to leave the stadium and there's like a steel door that bars their way, right, Billy? For some weird reason. <laughs> now, this is probably just an emergency exit, but it's made of steel. And the yeah. Atom's trying to to open it, but he can't. So he sort of like rushes at it and bashes it with his shoulder, but he can't Older break walk. it open. <laughs> and then what happens? Okay, this is the introduction of your favorite character here, which is brilliant, by the way. We can't get out. And then this um, figure in a suit and a fedora says, but I can and they're like, who in the blazes are you? And then he rips off his uh, disguise and it's like, I'm the robot man. <laughs> and holy cats! <laughs> holy cats! <laughs> and yeah, then... Roy did a good job, I'll tell you what, of you know putting things in here because, again, it's being written in 1981 and published, but he, this is really supposed to be happening in the Golden Age. So he really tried and did a good job of trying to use a lot of the language you would have heard back then you know you're not gonna hear anybody saying holy cats in 1981 but i bet you probably did back in the 1940s so it's funny but it's good i like it yeah no no that's true and you know the atom even references like you know when when robot man you know tells him he's a robot the the atom says don't give us any of that carol capek stuff so he's (laughs) referencing this is a dated reference obviously but he's referencing a playwright I think it was a Czech writer who coined the term robot, you know, so robot. obviously this, you know, uh, Dr. Crane introducing himself as robot man, <laughs> the Atom's like not having it. He's like, this this must be some kind of a trick. This must just be like a, a sideshow attraction or something. This cannot be real. But then, you know, mm-hmm. the Atom assumed proven wrong in a very funny way when robot man just bashes open the steel door and at right. super speed, picks up Atom and Dr. Midnight, puts them on his shoulders and runs with them through DC to the White House, jumping, leaping over cars and stuff. And the Atom just like he's sitting there and he's saying, oh, it's a good thing my mask covers my whole face, Doc, so nobody can see me blushing. (laughs) So he's become a believer. He's become a believer in science fiction within the space of five minutes. Yeah, and then a passerby he thinks to himself as he sees robot man with these two grown men on his shoulders jumping over a car this guy this town's getting crazier every day (laughs) (laughs) so good oh man it's amazing so you know basically um they head towards the white house but before that we get to the next chapter in the story which is sort of tied into this one uh, but this is already set in and around the White House, um, right outside the White House, in fact, where um, the uh, camera man that we met, the, or the photographer that we met in the preview, Johnny Chambers, mm-hmm. yeah, he's running towards the White House because he knows something's up. You know, um, he, he knows there's been an event, and they, you know, he's heading towards the White House, probably waiting for a press briefing or something. Uh, to say that what's been happening, you know, and um, to, to because everybody's been expecting the war at this point in time, right, Billy? There's been mm-hmm. negotiations with Japan, and we'll get into that during our segment where we talk about the historical um, 
aspects of, 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 of why the attack happened on Pearl Harbor. But, you know, everybody knew that some form of attack was coming. They just didn't know it was going to be at Pearl Harbor. They thought it was going to be, um, you know, at the American interests in probably the Philippines or, or somewhere in, mm-hmm. in Asia. They just weren't expecting this. So, you know, all the reporters and, and photographers and everybody, all the news agencies were on standby. So, yeah, they, they were always hanging around the White House waiting for some news. So this makes sense. You know, Johnny Chambers being this ace photographer, he runs into a war correspondent, Libby Lawrence, who's also famous, even more famous than he, he himself. And um, she is also there. She wants to find out what's been happening. And they sort of decide to not team up. I mean, they're, they they they... This is the first time they've met, and they're they've got this kind of tension between them, the sexual tension a little bit already, you know. But yeah. both comment on how what a looker the other is, and that kind of thing. And then they head off into the White House with the the caveat that each of them will, if they get the, the chance, upstage the other, <laughs> or <laughs> if 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 possible. And then you know, Johnny has this brief. Um, uh, memory of reading about something that he heard about Libby Lawrence, which is that she was actually, since she's a war correspondent, she was there in Poland when the Nazis attacked in in 1939, and then in 1940 when she had when you know Dunkirk happened, she swam all the way from France across the English Channel all by her lonesome towards <laughs> England to escape the German advance. So she's pretty tough. You know, I mean, uh-huh. not many people could swim the English Channel, you know, back yeah. then. I mean, you'd have to be like a, 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 a the best swimmer in the world to, to be able to do that under the right conditions. So there's something about her that's, you know, she's not a normal girl. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he admires her, but he's also like, um, you know, her rival at the same time. And then they're interrupted by Robot Man <laughs> and Dr. Midnight <laughs> and the Atom literally just jumping over the White House fence. <laughs> uh-huh. And the soldier just says, "That's oh, that's fine. You reporters can come in, but but they're JSA. They can come in anytime they want." <laughs> yeah. And then while they're arguing with the with the guard at the gate, Plastic Man and Hawkman arrives, <laughs> also flying over the gate. And everybody's yeah. dist- distracted by them, and then that's when Libby Lawrence and Johnny Chambers disappears. And then Billy who shows up? I mean, obviously, you know, in their superhero guises. Uh, yeah, Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick. So, you listeners, you'd, you'd be idiots if you don't know who they were in real life. We just <laughs> mentioned them. Johnny Chambers' alter ego, his superhero moniker, Johnny Quick. Also, um, super fast, arguably, possibly not as fast as The Flash, but close. Mm-hmm. And Le- uh, Liberty Bell, um, she's got, you know... Oh, not really powers, but I'd say she's on par with, with, let's say, for instance, someone like Captain America, where she's a patriotic superhero yeah, tied to the Liberty Bell in, um, um, where is it? Uh, the Liberty Bell, Billy? Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I should have known that, yeah. but I, I, feel I forgot. Like, I feel like she is. Yeah, she's almost like a female Captain America. Like she's, I like you said, on par with him. Yeah, like I mean, human peak athleticism and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and later on, she would develop powers of her own but right now the only thing that she does have that could compete with cap's super soldier formula is sort of she has uh, adrenal powers you know her adrenaline mm-hmm. is triggered whenever the liberty bell is rung in mm-hmm. in philadelphia like you say so yeah basically 
you know, that gives her superhuman, well, not, not superhuman, but like you say, Olympic level speed and strength. And she's also a mean hand-to-hand combatant. She's really good. Yeah. Um, she's mm-hmm. got some martial arts skill. I don't know if it's self-developed or if it's Savate or Judo or any of those that were popular at the time back then, but she's she can hold her own against multiple, let's say, for instance, Japanese soldiers or German soldiers easily. Mm-hmm. And oh, then, yeah. And then Johnny Quick is in possession of a formula gifted to him by his university professor or college professor, um, mm-hmm. which allows him, every time he says the formula, it gives him super speed. And it wears off after a while. But this ju- does not make him a, a carbon copy of the Flash, right? But he's got other powers like that the Flash does not necessarily have. Like he could sort of fly a little, you know. Um, later on, he, he would develop his flying power a little bit better. But he could, even in these early issues, he could sort of like use his momentum to fly a, a little mm-hmm. bit. But basically, his main power is super speed. So Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, they show up along with Plastic Man, Dr. Midnight, Hawkman, Robot Man, and the Atom, and they're at the White House. And this is exactly what FDR was waiting for, right, Billy? He wanted the JSA. He got the JSA, but he also got a couple of extras that he wasn't planning on. Yeah. So then, Billy, he lets them in on his plan. And what exactly is his plan, like his his idea, FDR's idea behind the All-Star Squadron? Well, like you said, you know, he's kind of trying to get he really wanted the JSA, but like you said, now he's got them and some more people here. So he's kind of like, you know, he wants to, you know, he wants to have them be like, you know, the protectors of North America, basically. But then, you know, also overseas eventually, but just not right away. You know, he wants them to, you know, be able to stop any threats that come to America for sure. Um, and that's that's what he's looking for right there, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like he he wants them to be his personal strike force, which he can direct at any point of of entry where the enemy might want to sabotage or, you know, launch an incursion into the United States or United States controlled areas. He wants them to be his at his beck and call whenever he, you know, sees fit to deploy them right billy that's what he wants he wants them to be the all-star squadron and in the old all-star comics of the golden age he in fact did something like this uh he created the justice battalion um but later on we'll 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 get to see that in the all-star all-star comics of the golden age the all the the justice society in fact disbanded and they joined up to serve in the military in their you know um civilian guises which um, yeah. will also happen in the pages of um, the All-Star Squadron as we progress through the series. But basically, Roy is telling the story of what happened. What, what are the untold tales of the Justice Society and of the other mystery men of America, as they were called at the time? What are the untold stories of that brief period in the war where the Justice Society, they were not engaged with you know, the war effort at all before they joined up, you know, mm-hmm. but the war was already happening. And um, basically what this is telling is this it's uh, incorporating the other mystery men at the time that were not a part of the Justice Society. And it's sort of like uh, bringing them into the fold, right, Billy? And I think that's brilliant on Roy's part. It, it, it makes it difficult to write because you've got this huge cast of characters, but it also gives characters who were sort of throwaway characters from the Golden Age that were not popular anymore now you know people like liberty bell like johnny quick like robot man it 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 gives them a chance to shine again in the pages of comics 
And and Roy's the right guy for the job, I'm sure, because he's got this real reverence for the Golden Age. And he's really fleshing out their characters. I mean, right off uh, initially, we've got this budding romance between Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick, but it's also like kind of like a Han Solo, Princess Leia kind of dynamic <laughs> because they, they hate each other, but they like each other, you know, like the scruffy nerf herder kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, you've got that. And, you know, that's Roy, like putting in some character moments. And then you've got Robot Man, you know, being obviously he's like a Ben Grimm kind of character, you know, almost yeah. similar to Cliff Steele. But I think, uh, you know, Cliff Steele, Robot Man from the 60s would take this directly from this Robot Man, Dr. Robert Crane, because he was the first and he has this uh, Ben Grimm, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, character arc where he's lamenting the fact that he's a robot, uh, a human brain stuck in a robot body. He's a monster, basically. So, yeah. yeah. And um, and then, you know, you've got the old JS Ayers who were never fully fleshed out like Dr. Midnight and the Atom. And they are now, by you know, through the, the excellent writing of Roy Thomas brought to the, the forefront here. Their personalities will improve as they go along. The Atom is great. You know, he's like he's kind of like the, the like a Wolverine type of character, if you want to call him that. You know, he's always first into the fray. He's always very overconfident. <laughs> I mean, this is early Wolverine from the, you know, from the 70s and 80s was always like that, the way Claremont wrote him. The Atom is kind of like that, you know, this yeah. this this gung-ho, sort of trigger-happy kind of member of the group, you know, doesn't like taking orders, <laughs> <laughs> but not completely, you know. So, Billy, then yeah. we're almost at the end of the comic because um, yep. as it turns out, um, just before FDR sends them on their first mission, which is to basically patrol the West Coast and, mm -hmm. um, you know, check for an attack on the mainland because right now everybody knows Pearl Harbor has happened. So now they're expecting... Mm -hmm. Because right at the moment that Pearl Harbor is happening, there's also joint attacks um, on, you know, places like the Philippines and Guam and, you know, uh, in Asia. So they're also rightfully expecting an attack on the West Coast. You know, which which yep. could be conceivable now that Pearl Harbor has been perpetrated, right, Billy? So he's sending them to patrol the West Coast, and this is they're obviously not as powerful as the JSA um, at full strength. I mean, they they don't have Doctor Midnight, they don't have, uh, sorry, they don't have Doctor Fate, they don't have the Spectre, um, Superman and Batman's out of it. Uh, you know, they were honorary members of the JSA. Wonder but Woman. Wonder Woman's out of it too. Yeah, so. Uh -huh. Um, but, you know, this makes sense that, you know, you can't deploy these guys immediately to the Pacific. So why not send them on a scouting mission first to make sure that, that you know, the States is safe. <laughs> so this kind of makes sense, right, yeah. Billy, if you think about it. And and it's yeah. fortuitous because as we see what's happening on the West Coast, Billy, in the final on the final page of this comic, what do we see happening? Yeah, we see Degaton in a submarine and he is heading to San Francisco and uh, he's got... Uh, Firebrand and uh, Shining Knight there with him, and he says that he's going to, uh, you know, conquer the entire planet. But he's going to start by uh, hitting the American mainland here on the West Coast because you know nobody's <laughs> there. He thinks they're going to be unawares, but like you said, the uh, All Star Squadron's heading there too. So big, uh, big show down there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so now, Billy, just correct me if if I've got this wrong, but the reason for Degaton perpetrating this attack now on the West Coast is he he has planes, 
aquaplanes, which can launch from a submarine. They can literally take off by launching like torpedoes out of this futuristic submarine piloted by him. And then Mm -hmm. they they launched out of the water and immediately they're they're airborne. And Mm -hmm. um, they're all disguised as Japanese zeros. So maybe I'm wrong here, but his plan seems to be Obviously, he wants to change past events so that it would turn out favorably for him so that he could conquer the, the world in the future. He wants to sort of, um, for some strange reason, hurt the U.S. more so that they're weaker, so that it wouldn't, in, in fact, later on be able to fully enter into World War II um, so that he might then take control of you know the chaos because as we do know, in fact, historically, we obviously know that what, what's going to happen, the attack on Pearl Harbor just basically awoke a sleeping giant and the U.S. immediately mobilized their vast industrial capacity to then create, you know, dozens and dozens of aircraft carriers and battleships and aircraft and, you know, yeah. um, that were in later superior to Japanese, um, at least in terms of technology. In the very first st- stages of World War Two, obviously, the Japanese were technologically actually ahead of of many of the U.S., especially their torpedo bombers and their Zeros. You know, um, they were yeah. um, uh, superior to uh, anything the U.S. had to offer. But then the U.S. soon mm-hmm. caught up and 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 overtook them. So maybe Degadon's plan here is to cripple the U.S. thoroughly, which the attack on Pearl Harbor did not seem to completely do. And that would destabilize the U.S. so that they would not be able to win the war. And then he could then co-opt the fascist governments, you know, or the, 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 the people like Hitler and Mussolini and eventually Japan. And um, then, I don't know, that, that seems to be his plan. But it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of yeah. a vague plan. But, you know, we don't, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, you know, because he knows more about the future than we do. But um, the the JSA and the All Star Squadron they are already heading him off before he can fully implement this plan. But yeah, it's just by sheer luck that this happened because, like like I say, he did not foresee the entry of the the mystery men who are not registered members of the JSA, and those are the very mystery men that FDR are now sending as the All Star Squadron on their first mission to the West Coast. And that's where Degaton's attack is happening. So we're going to see a full, full-blown confrontation there, right, Billy? Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, they, it shows the All-Star Squadron, you know, in this dramatic pose, you know, running towards, you know, probably to get on an airplane, <laughs> go to the West Coast because <laughs> uh, they can't fly. Well, Hawkman can, but he's the only one. And then you have them. Uh, you know, all shouting something and Dr. Midnight, next stop, the West Coast. And my favorite, the Atom. If I catch any saboteurs, they're going to need new jawbones. <laughs> <laughs> and Johnny Quick, I'm with you there, mighty might. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you've got this, uh, you know, final page, which is absolutely great, where, where you know, Sir Justin and uh, Danette Rayleigh are held captive below the submarine and Degaton yeah. gloating over them and then Sir Justin saying you'll not succeed in your deviltry varlet <laughs> <laughs> I love it <laughs> yeah and so you know lots of these great Sir Justinisms gonna come and um, also we've got great quotes from the Adam he's, he's always one for quoting um, and then you know that that's how the comic ends with Degaton screaming at Sir Justin saying you know, I'm a foe who's already conquered time, and I mean to conquer the planet as well. 
<laughs> so it's kind of oh, the yeah. opposite of Kang the Conqueror, right, Billy? He's already conquered the, his planet in the 40th century, but now he wants to conquer all time. <laughs> Take it on saying he's already <laughs> conquered time. He just needs to conquer the planet. <laughs> <laughs> And then next, Degadon clashes with the newly formed All-Star Squadron in the Battle of San Francisco. So that's going to be a, a doozy. Um, looks... Yeah, and then uh, at, starting with that issue, we'll have a string of Joe Kubert covers. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, love yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Amazing issue. The cover to it. issue two features the JSA on an airplane on a Japanese Zero, which, in fact, we now know to be one of Degadon's futuristic airplanes disguised mm-hmm. as a Japanese Zero. But... It's a great shot of Kubert. It's it's him doing war, but also superheroes. And when he combines the two, it's magic. So yeah, we're gonna yeah. get some great covers. But Billy, now that's something um, we didn't speak on. Like obviously, this this falls under you know our art discussion. But um, the, the mm. cover to this first one is pretty good too. Oh, it's great. It is one of to me. It's one of the most iconic covers. Yeah, from nineteen eighty forward, maybe even before that, but definitely. Anything post-1980, this is one of the most iconic covers, especially for DC Comics. It's just an incredible, incredible cover. Yeah, yeah, no, no, this is an amazing cover. Um, if, if we can describe it to the listeners, I'm sure they all, all know this already. This is basically three mm-hmm. the three members of the JSA who weren't captured, Hawkman, the Atom, and Dr. Midnight, looking over photographs on their, you know, meeting, you know, in their meeting hall, on, on spread out on the, the table, of uh, possible members of uh, the All-Star Squadron and of uh, current members of the Justice Society. And so we've got guys like the Vigilante, we've got the Crimson Avenger, we've got, you know, Captain Triumph, (laughs) Tarantula, (laughs) and then we've got the heavy hitter Superman, Doctor Fate, Green Lantern, Spectre, Wonder Woman, you know. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a great cover. There's even some mock-ups of uh, heroes on the walls, right? The Shining Knights there in the back, Wildcat, Johnny Quick, Star Spangled Kid, and Stripesy. Everybody's there, really. And uh, this is one of those classic get-the-team-together issues that I love, that the Avengers were Mm -hmm. good at them, the Justice League later on in the 80s, they were good at those, you know, let's get the team together stuff. Now, this is before that even, but um, even then, you know, it's like an exciting way to start a comic, you know, like... um, Who's mm-hmm. going to be in this team? It's not just going to be the old JSA. There's going to be new members, even though they were also old Golden Age characters. And exciting yeah, I mean, times. They, the, the pictures on the table do give you, you know, it doesn't just give away who all is going to be on the team. It's a, a good mix of, you know, like you said, uh, old JSAers and some newer characters too. And it's uh, pretty mysterious. You know, you don't know from the cover who's going to be on the team, who's not going to be on the team. You're still very very intrigued by what's on the cover because you don't know yeah that's right that's right yeah so very you know good though, Buckler, I'm, man. Oof, yeah just, good. just like it says on the cover the answer will astound you you know who will be the heroes of the all-star squadron so i mean if you see this you're going to pick it up as a kid or even as an adult at the time on the newsstands on the spinner racks you're definitely going to pick something like this up because this is something that mm-hmm. needs to you need to know you need to know who's going to be in this team <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely so, Billy, art-wise, this is a winner. Writing-wise, this is really good. Uh, great dialogue from Roy. You've got some perfect character introductions without really getting into their origin stories, um, mm-hmm. which in ma- many cases need to be told because the readers at the time arguably would not have been the folks reading 
in most cases would not have been the comic book fans from the, the 1940s who were familiar with characters like Robot Man and Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell. Um, yeah. It would be people who, I'd say most of the readers, maybe 80 or 90% of the readers who picked up this issue would be new to these characters, you know, like you know Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell. Um, they would definitely yeah. know the JSA because of their presence in 1970s comics in the Bronze Age, but I'd say that they would have thought these might be new characters, you know, and um, there's always, you know, um, excitement involved when you've got old characters interacting with new characters. Yeah. So even though Roy didn't create most of these characters, he definitely gave breathed new life into them. So I'm I'm always grateful to him for that because they became some of my favorite characters in comics. I mean, Robot Man alone, like I say, Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell, they're always they're one of my favorite eight couples in comics in the 1980s you know mm -hmm. it's just so many great stories that's going to flow from this and then roy started it all yeah having somebody like roy that was such a huge fan of the golden age because that's what he grew up reading you know and then of course the guy being a really good writer uh just in a historian and a good writer and such a fan kind of you know because you and i both know you can read comics sometimes and you can tell the creators it was it was just a job it was just a paycheck and that's not to mean that it was badly written but there just wasn't a passion there it was it was a job and they wrote the best they could and they did a good job writing but there wasn't like a love or a passion for that project mm. but you mm. you can feel that with this and you feel it going through you know the next few issues and on and on with roy exactly no 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 that's the way he's always been writing i think maybe um that wasn't the case when he left dc you know after you know being mal you know mistreated by M Mort Weisinger, uh, <laughs> oh, maybe God. he saw you know like Mort Marvel Wein. as a, a bit of a slog in the beginning because he wasn't familiar with the characters. But I'm sure because he you know he always had wanted to write the characters over at DC, you know which was yeah. National Comics that he read when he was younger, and um, you know then he that that dream was you know destroyed by <laughs> an asshole basically. <laughs> <laughs> a jerk yeah treating him Pretty like much, yeah. yeah bullying him basically so yeah. you know um but he he did wonderful things in marvel amazing things and then he went back to dc and that you know, then he fulfilled his dream uh, many times over i'd say um oh yeah with everything he gave us so you know i'm so glad that it turned out the way it did i mean it could have turned out many different ways it might also have been great but you know, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't be per degaton and go back in time and change any of those <laughs> historical events, if you know what I mean. No. <laughs> I'd keep it uh, just, yeah, no. just the way it happened. So, yeah. Billy, man, that that leads us over to um, our historical side of 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 what occurred, right? Mm -hmm. um, which I'm gonna helm now. I want you to chime in here. Of of course, everything's set against the backdrop of war. Um, you know, in the All-Star Squadron. But the All-Star Squadron would not always engage in direct confrontation with the Japanese army or with the Germans. They would um, fight German supervillains, Japanese supervillains. And every now and then, of course, they would encounter, you know, uh, you know, a, a slew of soldiers. Yeah, uh, maybe some Japanese forces that they would then quickly take out. But that was never the main event, if you know what I mean. The Japanese no. forces, uh, forces or the Germans that they fought were always in the way of them getting to a, a, a larger objective which was That's mostly right, to yeah. take out a villain or something but you know the historical mm -hmm. cons, uh, um, content 
um, is always what appealed to me here because it was set in a time that was fascinating to me. Now, mm -hmm. readers might ask, okay, so if you have characters like Superman and the Spectre, they're obviously not going to remain imprisoned, you know, all the time by Degaton. How can mm -hmm. you have them engaging in a war? Because obviously they, they could take out Hitler and Mussolini uh, and, uh, you know, Tojo over in Japan, like lickety split, even Stalin <laughs> eventually, you know, yeah. even though he was one of, not the good guys, but he was fighting on the side of the allies. He was an ally. Yeah. I mean, you, you think, why don't they, they deal with a situation like that? Well, that is explained later on. And we're going to mm -hmm. tease that, listeners. But Roy introduces something really interesting. I wouldn't say it always makes sense, but it definitely stops the most powerful DC heroes like the Spectre, Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, and Superman and Wonder Woman. It stops yeah. them from going, just going over there and solving the problem and, and taking out the leaders of the opposition lickety-split. And it's, it's, a, it's a good kind of device. It's kind of like Superman's kryptonite, you know, sort of uh, weakening them forcing them to sort of uh, stay in the the timeline of how the war really played out. Yeah. But, um, you know, we're still going to talk about the historical uh, tie-ins because it's important just to give a bit of uh, background mm -hmm. to how this played out. Yeah, for sure. So, Billy, we've decided to call this segment our Earth, uh, Earth Prime Archives because, mm -hmm. after all, we're on Earth Prime. We know how the war played out here. <laughs> <laughs> Roy, he's <laughs> tapping the Earth Prime archives and putting the Earth 2 and mixing it up with an Earth 2 bit of a, a stew here, right? So the yep. only thing we've got to refer to is obviously our Earth Prime events. All right, right. so yeah, one thing you know, you know that baffles most people is the fact that the Japanese obviously uh, initiated the, the war at all. But, you know, once you look at it, um, and you read up on it and you study it for a bit, it's actually not as unbelievable. Obviously, it turned out to be a huge mistake on their part, but um, it, it was definitely not prompted by stupidity. It definitely had some arrogance involved. You know, they, they expected the U.S. to back down once their main fleet had been destroyed, which was obviously the purpose of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But they did not... Mm -hmm foresee how things would play out in terms of how America would be rallied, uh, how the patriotic spirit would be sort of awakened by the, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor and also other events. But before Pearl Harbor yeah. happened, America was very um, anti-war. You know, they just came out of the Great Depression. FDR had been elected for an unprecedented third term, the only president ever to serve that long. In American history, mm -hmm. and he had been elected in, I think, 1932 uh, to combat the Great Depression. So he had already been serving two terms, and then 1940, right, Billy was an election year. So he was elected again, but he ran off of the platform of his main message being, "I'm not going to send your boys into any foreign war." And his opponent ran mm -hmm. on the same kind of platform, you know. So <laughs> that's the funny part of this. And then obviously mm -hmm. Japan having perpetrated this heinous act um, uh, left America with no choice. They had to enter the war because you you can't have your entire fleet destroyed. Well, it wasn't the entire fleet. Luckily, air, the aircraft carriers were all, um, you know, um, at sea at the time. So if the aircraft carriers had been destroyed, as along with the battleships on Battleship Row in Pearl Harbor, that would have been a disaster of, of terrible yeah. proportions. But luckily for the Americans, they were not. And the Japanese were very disappointed that they, in fact, 
did not uh, sink those aircraft carriers because they were um, at the forefront of military uh, strategy at the time where they realized, the Japanese I'm talking about here, that aircraft carriers were going to carry this war. You know, um, you could have battleships that were heavily armored, um, super battleships considered to be at the time easily taken out by just, uh, of, you know, um, some airplanes with torpedo bombers and and torpedo and, yeah so you know it doesn't matter the, the british relied heavily on their their giant battleships but they proved ineffective when they in fact met the japanese uh, navy in the pacific because the british had a presence in the pacific they had colonies in asia and um, later on during the war that was proven true that battleships now are a thing of the past in fact what you need uh, are aircraft carriers, you know, that can ferry ferry 200 planes or 100 planes across the ocean and then have them attack ships. So the Japanese did that amazingly at Pearl Harbor, especially with their torpedoes. Their torpedoes took out um, uh, at least eight battleships and many small smaller craft. And um, so, you know, uh, Pearl Harbor suffered heavily. And then obviously the airfield at Pearl Harbor was bombed extensively too. So all of uh, the airplanes were taken out. So this this is why I, I despise the movie Pearl Harbor starring Josh, Josh Hartnett and Ben Affleck so much because it shows some American pilots taking off and like, you know, shooting down dozens of Japanese airplanes. No, it didn't happen that way. You know, this, they were caught completely by surprise. In fact, most of the airplanes um, at the time, you know, Billy, on, uh, at Pearl Harbor were tied together because they were fearing sabotage you know, um, more that they were fearing, in fact, an attack. They were uh, yeah. they they were scared of Japanese <clears throat> infiltrators, maybe planting bombs. I mean, Hawaii did have a large Japanese population, although they were all Americans and they were patriots. But but you know, paranoia at the time and racism at the time ran rampant. So they 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 kind of were being cautious. And because of the planes being tied together and all you know all you know moved together on the runway. Uh, it, it made it hard to take off. So yeah, they were all bombed and, and destroyed. And um, yeah. this attack, though, was exactly you know what FDR painted it to be. It wasn't hyperbole. It was an attack, uh, a, um, a sneak attack, and it was a day that would live in infamy simply because the Japanese only declared war while the attack was in progress. If you know what I mean. But but technically, right. that you know the declaration of war reached the Americans later because you know. They were cabling it, and you know it. it so it was a sneak attack. The U.S. was not at war with Japan at the time, and right. yet they were attacked. Now it wasn't an unprovoked attack, right, Billy? You have to realize that. Like uh, just a couple of months before, the U.S. had uh, placed oil embargoes on Japan, and in in mm -hmm. fact, they had caused the Japanese yen to to de devalue to the state where it disappeared off of Wall Street completely. So Japan yeah. could not use its own currency anywhere else in the world, even in Europe. They could only use it in Asia itself. And they needed oil. They needed um, other resources that they were dependent on from the US. And the US had completely cut them off from that. So, you know, it was kind of like um, a military decision prompted by necessity because at the time the Japanese were engaged uh, in a war with China since 1937. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so that's uh, many historians argue that that's actually when the when World War Two should have, well, when people should the history book should say it started in 1937 when right. China, when uh, Japan invaded China. Now they had a presence in China before too in Manchuria. You know, they took Manchuria in 1931, 
And the reason is, Billy, it's all because of resources. You know, Japan does not have a lot of natural resources. They want it. They need it. Things like iron, rubber, you know, um, and you need that to, to, to build up a strong military presence. And they did. You know, they took that Manchuria. But they soon realized that the war with China was bleeding them dry. They needed more resources. So what did they do? They went further south into Asia. They attacked the colonies of the nations who were now weakened, you know, like France. France had been defeated by Germany. And in 1940, Japan signed the Tripartite Pact, which, which effectively, with, with Germany and uh, with Italy, which effectively created the Axis powers. That's why we call yeah. the enemies in the All-Star Squadron the Axis. And in fact, of course, all the history books call them the Axis versus the Allies. Uh, but that was that uh -huh. 1940 pact that they signed. And of course, what would a country like America do if a country that potentially you could have a war with, like Japan, because, you know, they're, they're making um, threats in, in, in Asia Pacific, now suddenly signs a pact with people who are diametrically opposed to you ideologically, politically, morally, like Italy and the Germans, the fascist nations of the world. Of course, America is yeah. going to be upset about that. So that's why FDR in 1940, um, you know, mobilized the American military. You know, they, they militarized. They started to, you know, um, do maneuvers and build battleships. And they started, I think they moved the Pacific fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor, um, you know, in 1940, because they were foreseeing a war. So, of course, this comic is completely accurate when it talks about, you know, the FDR knew things were happening, things were going to hit the fan soon. But the only thing mm -hmm. that is controversial about this, the, the, the preview, in fact, Billy, that we did last time, was the fact that FDR knew that there was going to be attack the very next day. That's, in fact, a conspiracy theory. Um, messages right. were intercepted. And, of course, the Japanese embassy, they were burning documents, you know, uh, a couple of days before the attack. So, yes, the Americans, they, they definitely knew. Uh, you know, that there might be an attack coming, um, especially since Japan was now desperate since most of their resources had been cut off. <clears throat> But <clears throat> for FDR to time it so closely to say that, oh, we need the JSA now on the evening of December 6th, because uh, tomorrow it might be too late. It's almost like playing, playing into this conspiracy theory that FDR knew about the attack on Pearl Harbor and he let it happen. All right. Now, that is a conspiracy theory. That's not, in fact, based in fact at all. And, um, you know, of course, <clears throat> there are still people who disagree about it today as conspiracy theories are one to stick around, right, Billy? But um, oh, yeah. he definitely did not know that there was going to be attack um, on Pearl Harbor. That was a surprise to everyone. You know, mm -hmm. it's just the audacity of the attack was so... It, it was such, a cal such a, an extreme risk for the Japanese to take. But it, yeah. it played out in their favor, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason for that is just believe the Japanese really did not, not have any other choice. With their yen devalued, they had no way of continuing the war in China. Um, and uh, so they went into French Indochina and, uh, you know, and um, you know, like places like Indonesia and Malaysia, which did have oil, which did have rubber and everything they needed. And because of that, the, the U.S. cut them off financially. And then they saw that. The Japanese, many of the Japanese saw that as a declaration of war by the U.S., if you know what I mean. So mm -hmm. for many of the Japanese, yeah. they were already at war with the U.S., but it was an economic war, uh, a war of strangulation, sort of. The U.S. was strangling them. 
And, um, you know, I'm not on the Japanese side here. And in fact, the Japanese are some of the most reprehensible um, soldiers of all. If you look at the atrocities they committed, right? But which we'll get into later in the, you know, other uh, episodes of the podcast. So I have no sympathy for the Japanese during the, well, for the Japanese soldiers and the army and the leaders and the generals during World War II. I have no sympathy for them. But you can understand why it happened. You know, so I'm just, I just want yeah. to put the readers into that state of mind. <clears throat> but, you know, this is not a historical podcast. This is just to provide a bit of background. Mm-hmm. I think I've done enough on that, Billy. We'll, we'll have more later. I might shorten the segment a bit because I don't want to bore anyone. But, you know, um, this answers the question, right, Billy, why the JSA could not really just stop the war. It's because right. in the beginning, when the war broke out, People like Dr. Fate and, and the Spectre and Superman could fly over there and, you know, s- probably stop the the attack on Pearl Harbor halfway through. So Roy came up with this brilliant, you know, s- uh, series of events where Per Degaton took out the most powerful American superheroes, took out yep. more than half of the JSA in order for this not to be a problem for Roy to deal with. So you, yes. you're left with these weaker members, right, Billy? But still pretty powerful in their own right. Uh, in their own right, still way more powerful than the Laws Legionnaires, the Seven Soldiers of Victory. <laughs> um, you know, but um, the, it was a brilliant decision on Roy's part to have the weaker members of the All Star Squadron, who in fact are also the 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 new members to the roster, being introduced yeah. to the reader in this way and being put at the forefront with a small JSI presence in the form of Doctor Midnight, the Atom, and Hawkman. Mm-hmm. And um, it also brought Plastic Man in, which is a welcome addition. I'm always a big fan of when Plastic Man shows up. So, oh, yeah. you know, um, that's that's basically how this his how the history tied in to the the events in the comic, mm-hmm. and why they had to go and patrol the West Coast. Which is now, hist- if we look back on it, it's a silly decision. I mean, there was never any threat to the West Coast. Uh, of course, right. there were saboteurs and so forth uh, in the U.S., but. Um, but, you know, for the events of this comic, it was fortuitous and it turned out to be a good decision on FDR's <laughs> part because, in fact, there was an attack and we will see that in the next issue. Yeah. So, yeah, Billy, that's it for our, uh, you know, Earth Prime archives. All right, cool, man. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's always a good thing. I love uh, hearing about the history and, like, you and I both, uh, you're a way bigger fan of that um, time than I am, but I love it, too. I love hearing about it, but, yeah. They're definitely uh, <laughs> steeped in it compared to me, but um, I'm here for the the education on it too. Love it. Thanks a lot. So, all right, man. We're just gonna we got a ton of feedback um, from our first you know episode and then our promo, so we're gonna go over some of that uh, when we come back after a quick break. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Prairie Justice. A Greg Sanders Vigilante Podcast is an exploration of the DC Comics character, the first superhero to use the name of the Vigilante. First published in Action Comics 42 in September 1941, amid comics' golden age and carried as a continuous feature, during those years the Vigilante was also a member of the Seven Soldiers of Victory and was one of the first DC heroes to appear on the cinema screen in his own serial. Reappearing in the Bronze Age, the Vigilante had a 1970s renaissance throughout the DC Universe. Greg Saunders, the Prairie Troubadour, leads a double life as a modern country and western musician, while also delivering justice throughout North America as a masked crime fighter, 
using the tactics and weapons of his rural Wyoming upbringing with his friends Billy Gunn and Stuff Leong, many a nefarious scheme was foiled with six guns, ingenuity, a motorcycle and a twirling lariat. Howdy, I'm Ranger Gord. Help me follow the trail of the vigilante on Podbean, Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Okay, everybody, we're back uh, with some feedback. And just to give you a heads up, we got a ton of feedback. So, you know, with this first, like, full-on episode and issue going a little bit longer, we're going to cover half of the feedback uh, in this show and then the other half in the next. And then, you know, just keep going with everything that we get from there on. Hopefully we can just always, you know, from then on do everything as it comes in. But, you know, thanks for all the awesome feedback uh, from everybody. You know, uh, we're going to be reading two emails here. And then we're going to save two for next time from uh, Gord and John. But this week we're going to do two. And uh, the first one is from uh, Craig McDonald. And uh, he was the first one to email us uh, right out of the gate. Like literally, you know, within a day or two of our first uh, episode here coming out. And he says, uh, hey, guys, listen to the first episode on Spotify and loved it. Had no idea about the preview when the JLA even existed, which, you know, I'm right there with you, buddy. I didn't either until I started researching this for the show. But um, he said his own introduction to the All-Star Squadron was issue 54. So a little bit later on in the uh, in the series, you know, the, the latter third, uh, he said during the original crisis, you know, on Infinite Earths, uh, it was a comic that introduced me to the Golden Age Flash and Green Lantern, which he loved. And they were new characters to him, also like Amazing Man and the Tarantula. And he said he thinks his dad bought it off the spinner rack at a local convenience store for him. And then he said uh, he's found a handful of other issues in back issue bins over the years, including the first issue. And uh, he's one of the people uh, hoping uh, DC will collect it in an omnibus or a series of trades at some point to uh, go that route instead of hunting down all the singles. So, you know, he really enjoyed the first episode. And uh, uh, we thank Craig for uh, chiming in. Yeah, thanks, Greg, man. Yeah, appreciate it, bud. Yeah, so that was really cool. But, uh, yeah, and then the second one I got that we're going to talk about here was from uh, Thomas Aiken. Uh, he said he wanted to say congratulations on the podcast debut. So thank you for that, Thomas. We appreciate it. He said it was a lot of fun and that All-Star Squadron is one of his all-time favorites. Uh, and he fell in love with the JSA characters in the JLA team-ups they did. I think those were in the Bronze Age, weren't they, Herman? Yeah, no, they were. I mean, well, some some okay. even happened as early as the you know Silver Age. The Silver, but, Silver yeah. Age too, yeah. But um, I think the later ones that he might have read, obviously Bronze Age. That's how we read them too, right, Billy? The Bronze Age ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was uh, an annual so thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they did them like once a year, right? Yeah, once a year, yeah. And then they would normally show up in, obviously, the Justice League issues. Um and then that's how I read them. I read, the, the, you know, the first uh, crossover I, I read was between, oh, yeah, I can't even remember. That was like mid mid Bronze Age or maybe like mid-70s. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how we all got onto the, you know, the fact that the JLA used to team up with the JSA. But it's like an ubiquitous concept for me. It was always there, right, Billy? I always knew about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't know mm-hmm. exactly what was my first exposure to it. Yeah, and he also goes on to say he's a big fan of, you know, Roy Thomas's work as well. And then uh, that he's a fellow podcaster. He is the guy that heads up the Doctor Who podcast called Gallifrey's Most Wanted. But his original thought was to do a JSA or All-Star Squadron podcast. So 
he's uh, glad we took up the challenge and said, keep up the great work. So thank you, Thomas, and uh, we appreciate your uh, input. Thanks, Thomas. And on a side note, Billy, I'm trying to get into Doctor Who now because I feel like that part of my sci-fi education is woefully underrepresented in all the podcasts I do. So I'm going to get into Doctor Who and this podcast is going to help me. So I'm going to start listening to Gallifrey's Most Wanted and uh, getting into some Doctor Who. I was a fan. I when I watched the show as a kid, it was on uh, PBS, the public broadcasting uh, channel, and it was the version with uh, Tom Baker. That's who the Doctor was. Right, and I right. First saw that show, you know, and then we, you know, you and I know him. He was in an Amicus horror movie. Yes. <laughs> so there's another little <laughs> tie in there. Little inroads for us. Mm. Yeah. So. I haven't seen any of the newer versions, but I've seen some of the older ones, um, you know, but I haven't seen any of the newer versions, but man, some of the people online just, they rave about Doctor Who. And then I had two more uh, quick shout outs. One is just in general, uh, and we'll get a more specific as things go on here, but just in general, all of our friends on Twitter and some new friends too that have, uh, you know, followed the All-Star Squadron uh, Twitter account I started. Uh, outpouring of... Uh, support from everybody there so we really love that you know like you know Harmon and I have talked about before we have a, a nice little group of friends on Twitter that really uh, are very supportive of uh, you know what he and I do and we want to thank those people too and then a definitely a special shout out to Laurel uh, her and her compatriots over at the Batgirl Huntress podcast uh, they definitely you know gave us a shout out and played our promo on their special New Year's Eve episode where they did uh I think it was a top nine. So between the three hosts, they each did a top three of JSAers if they wanted to build their, you know, best perfect JSA team uh, on that episode. They uh, gave us a shout out and played our promo. So thank you much, uh, much thanks there, Laurel and company. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. We appreciate it. And yeah, that's another good podcast, listeners. If none of you have sampled the Bad Girl Hunters podcast, very engaging. Um, and then, you know, yeah, all of the shows that Ashford, uh, you know, Helms is sort of like, um, you know, interesting. I, I like listening to all of his shows. And uh, Laurel's a part of most of them, you know, either as a guest or as a regular co-host. So, yeah, thanks for that, guys. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks again. Yeah, really uh, love the support. You guys are the greatest. All right, Herman. So I guess that's uh, another one in the can here. So uh, we're going to do our little sign off here. You know, if anybody wants to, you know, get in contact with us, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter um, at Dark Longbox. Um, that's where I uh, basically focus mostly on horror comics, but um, also talk superheroes. And um, uh, you and I believe we're also at Into Weird, which is our account for uh, our Sink Into the Weird you know, um, into the weird podcast where we talk Doctor Strange. And, uh, but I'm mostly at Dark Longbox, um, where I engage as if I <laughs> was not a podcast, <laughs> as if I was actually like a person, <laughs> even though it's a, it's an account that says, oh, this is a, a podcast account. So, um, yeah, you know, listen to the Longbox of Darkness if you want to, listeners, or to our Into the Weird show where we talk Doctor Strange and Marvel Bronze Age weirdness. And then, then you and I, Billy, we've got, of course, this show. Mm-hmm. And um, then, Billy, what about you? Where can I find you online? Yeah, for me personally, I'm an, on Twitter at Billy D underscore Licious. And then the show is uh, All Star Squadron. And it's at All Squadron. 
so definitely look us up there. And then you can always send email. We love email. We love feedback. So, you know, if you want to send us an email, it's uh, a world on fire podcast at gmail.com. So, yeah, definitely keep sending in those emails or messages on Twitter or even just, you know, engage with us there and let us know what you're thinking of the show. And, you know, what, like we had today, what our favorite characters are. Let us know which you know, characters are your favorites from the All-Star Squadron and favorite moments. And, uh, yeah, please keep listening in. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, do so. And, um, you know, um, again, just to mention that we, we do have two other emails that we did not get to this time around, like you mentioned, Billy, because of the, the sheer length of the emails. We got some really good feedback there. We'll address all of that in our next episode. But don't let that deter you. Keep send, sending in feedback. Normally, we'll try to cover all the feedback in one show. But this time around, like you say, Billy, we were inundated by, by lots of comments and, and, and you know, from people so um yeah we'll get to that and give you a shout out on the show when we read your um correspondence so yeah we're definitely not gonna shortchange anybody don't worry we'll we'll definitely get your feedback out there and uh, you know it's all been you know good stuff too it's all been positive it's all been you know constructive criticism which we're we're fine with all that bring bring it on we have no problem uh, engaging with stuff like that that's great so thank you definitely man billy no i'm looking forward to the next episode already there's some great stories great art great character moments that are going to be coming that are on the horizon i'm sure our listeners would enjoy that as much as we enjoy mm-hmm. talking about them so keep listening to um our podcast the world on fire and um you know hopefully we can just improve from here on out yep for sure so thanks for listening everybody and we will see you next time with episode two